All right, well, hello everyone. Welcome to Emmanuel Church. How are you guys doing today? All right, well, that was almost encouraging. That's great. <laughs> and listen, I really do. I hope you guys are doing excellent. And if you're not, you're not doing excellent when you've walked in, we really do hope that as you leave today that you really will be able to say that you're doing excellent. Well, I'm glad to see you. And my name is Bill Miller. I'm actually the campus pastor at our Banta campus, and I'm excited to be here with you today. And I wanted to just take a moment, and I wanted to welcome all of our first-time guests in the service with us. I wanted to just take a second and just tell you a little bit about what we have going on here. Uh, last weekend, our lead pastor, Pastor Danny, he just finished up a New Year series for us called Reboot. It's a fantastic series about uh, helping us to get the new year started off right. Next weekend, Danny's going to be back. He's taking a couple days off, and he's going to launch a new series called Hashtag. So it's going to be excellent, so I want to encourage you to come back for that. But just to let you know what we have going on today, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, maybe as you walked in today, you noticed that we have some tables scattered around the auditorium. Even up here on the platform, you see the silver trays. Inside there, we have some crackers, and we have some small cups with juice in it. And that just means that we are going to be taking and celebrating communion today. And I know this, that maybe some of you, you've attended churches where you've done communion maybe weekly. Uh, perhaps maybe you did it twice a year at your church. It may, may have been like Christmas or Easter. Or perhaps you have never experienced communion before. Well, that's okay. Because what we're going to do today, we're going to kind of walk you through that process and tell you what to expect and what it's all about. Uh, the word communion, the name communion, just literally means this. It means fellowship. It is a time where we get together and we build relationships and we enjoy each other's company. Maybe sometimes you've called communion the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. That would be perfectly appropriate also because Jesus actually instituted this ordinance of communion around a table, around a meal. And so in the Bible, we see also that there's a lot of things that took place around meals. There's festivals and there's feasts and there's rituals. And we see that God used meals as a way to be able to reveal things about who he is and about his character. And so what we're gonna do today we're gonna take a look at three meals that we're gonna find in the Bible, and we're gonna see that God used these meals as a way to be able to just show who he is, and it's gonna be able to, pre to uh, prepare us then to be able to take communion. And so as I start, I just have a question for you. How many of you remember the most expensive meal that you have ever eaten? Okay, for me this is an easy one because I am not the kind of person that spends a lot of money on meals. I really tend to be kind of cheap in this area. And so for 20 years I was in the construction business and so what I would do at lunchtime, I'd get in my truck, I would find the closest Speedway gas station and I would go in there and I'd try to beat the other contractors and I would get two hot dogs for $2. Awesome. You see, I wasn't about to go and spend $5 for another lunch or anything like that. I was going to settle for these hot dogs. And so that's why back in March when my son bought his mom and I a gift certificate to go to a local steakhouse, it was a big deal for me. Um, some of you guys would know this steakhouse. You've probably eaten there. They are known and they're world famous for their jumbo shrimp and their cocktail sauce. So he got us a gift certificate to eat at St. Elmo's. And so at St. Elmo's, it was a big deal. In fact, I think we have a picture of, of the meal. Yeah, there it is. Yum. 21 ounces of ribeye. They called it the cowboy ribeye. It wasn't the city slicker ribeye. This is the big monster. This is the one that's all on the bone. You get a monster baked potato. You get the soup. You get the salad. It was absolutely delicious. And now I know this. 
I took a big risk by even showing you a picture of this meal because I can hear stomachs starting to rumble right now. And so, ladies, I'm gonna ask you to do this. If you are sitting next to your boyfriend or your husband, would you just give him a little nudge and would you say, come back, because I know he just left on a food fantasy. He's gone. <laughs> Well, there's some other places also downtown Indianapolis that you can eat that for around $60 you can get, you know, that, that expensive, that extravagant type meal I would call. Maybe you've probably eaten at this place. You could walk out the door and walk around the corner. There's a place called Ruth's Chris. They're well known and famous. There's other steakhouses downtown you could eat at. Maybe steak's not your thing. I can't imagine. Maybe it's fish. If that's the thing for you, maybe you've eaten at this place. It's called the Ocean Air. They fly their fish in daily, I guess, and so a lot of people really like to eat here. But all of these places here in Indianapolis, right around that $60 mark. Well, I know that maybe some of you, you guys travel for business, or maybe you've taken vacations to Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago. Maybe even you've been to New York and you've heard of this place, or maybe you've eaten it. It's a place that's called the Masa. Now, the Masa, if you can even get a seat to get in, is only open, in, open limited hours. And there you can go in, you can eat their signature dish, and if you want to, you could spend $450 for the meal. That's without drinks, that's without a tip, and so I just know this, if I ate a meal like that, I would not even begin to be able to enjoy that. Maybe you could, but I couldn't do that. Or maybe, maybe some of you guys, you've traveled the world, or maybe you've heard about this guy. This is a businessman, he's an entrepreneur from Macau. His name is Stanley Ho, and Stanley didn't just spend hundreds of dollars on a meal or thousands of dollars. Stanley was up in the hundreds of thousands of dollars for a meal. Stanley Ho spent $360,000 for a plate of truffles. Now, maybe you know what truffles are. I didn't know what truffles were. I thought they were those chocolate things that you ate for like those desserts. Here's what truffles, I've looked it up, I found out. Truffles are actually a fungi. And, 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 and the word truffle is actually derived from the Latin word which means lump. And so, let me get this straight. Stanley Ho spent $360,000 for a lump of fungus. <laughs> nice job, Stanley, that's great, congratulations. Well, you know something? As expensive and off the chart that these meals cost, they are nothing at all compared to the three meals that we're gonna take a look at that we actually find in the Bible. These meals are, are costly and they're expensive. And so, um, the first meal that I'm gonna share with you, if you're taking notes, inside your handout, you're gonna see the first meal is called the meal in the garden. Now, doesn't that sound quaint, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound enjoyable? In fact, if you've ever shopped at Whole Foods and that's kind of your thing, you like to have fresh fruits and vegetables and grains and herbs and no GMOs and all the additives and preservatives, you would have loved this meal. I mean, can you just see there's a table setting in a garden with two chairs and over here you've got bunny rabbits eating herbs and you've got squirrels in the trees eating nuts, you've got deer off in the distance and it's just the absolute perfect setting and you're thinking to yourself, how much can a meal like this cost and what could possibly go wrong with this meal? Well, here's the setup for this meal. 
Actually, God had just finished creating the heavens and the earth. And when he had finished it, he then created Adam out of the dust of the ground. And he breathed into him the breath of life. And he said to Adam, he said, this is very good, this creation of mine. And so then what he did is he took Adam, he placed him in a garden, in a garden that he had grown up. And so he's got this perfect setting. He's got this garden uh, environment for Adam and Eve. And he said, all of this is yours. And he has a conversation except for one thing, Adam and here's what he says. In Genesis 2, he says, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so you know what I think is interesting? A lot of us, when we think about God, our perception is this, that God is this God who's made rules and he's got regulations and he's got all of these restrictions for us. But I want you to know from the very beginning when God created us, that was not his intention for us. He was a God of grace. And so he planted Adam and Eve in this garden of grace and he said, you can have it all. I've created it for your enjoyment except for just this one thing. Don't take and eat of this fruit. Well, God had set the table for them and then laid it out for them. And then as Adam and Eve are getting ready to have a meal, they have an uninvited guest that shows up. And the Bible says that this is actually a serpent. This is Satan incarnate who shows up and he's gonna engage Eve in a conversation. And, they, and the conversation goes like this. He steps in and the, and the serpent says, hey, I see all of this that God's created for you. And is it true that God said that you can't eat of any of this fruit? What he was saying is, isn't it too bad that God's such a tease that he would give you all of these things in front of you and that he would withhold something good from you? It's like he's this cosmic killjoy that's not gonna allow you to have any fun. And, and Eve, she, she responded back, she came right back and she said, no, 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 that's not true. That's not what God said. In fact, God said we could eat of all of the trees here except for just one that he placed in the midst of the garden. And that one, that's the one that we can't eat of and we're not even supposed to touch it because if we do, in that day, we're gonna die. Well, you see what Eve did. She starts to be the one who puts restrictions on herself, doesn't she? And so the serpent comes back and he realizes, I'm gonna change my approach with Eve. Instead of talking about what God said to do, I'm gonna talk about why. And so he comes in and he says, oh, surely, come on. You gotta be kidding me. There's no way in the world you're gonna die. God just created you, here's the, here's the truth behind it. God doesn't want you to eat because he knows that when you do, you're gonna be just like him. You're gonna know good and evil, and so God is really holding something back from you. He's keeping you from being everything that you could ever possibly wanna be. And so the next verse says that Eve took a look at the fruit, she saw that it was good to look at, she realized that it would be good to taste, and she thought, this is gonna be able to make me wise in all ways. And so she went ahead and she took a bite. And then it says that she turned and she handed this fruit to her husband, to Adam, and he also took a bite. Well, if we were reading the story for the first time, we would think, well, then they probably dropped dead, didn't they? Right then, that's what God said. But here's what happened. Here's what started to, to, to cost them. In Genesis 3, verse seven, it says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. Wow. You see, God had clothed them in innocence, and at that moment, they fell from where God had placed them down to a lower level to where they realized something is wrong. We now know the difference between right and wrong, and now we can see that we are no longer the innocent creation that God has made us. And so here's what happens next. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Ah. Okay, let me get this straight. So Adam and Eve thought that they could actually dine and dash on God and get away with it. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. And you know what? It would be funny, wouldn't it, if it wasn't so sad and tragic. Isn't it sad that, that actually when they would have heard God in the past, what would they have done? They would have responded probably with joy. They would have run to be in the presence of God and God created them to be in an intimate relationship with them. And I believe that this is the saddest and most tragic verse in the Bible because what did they do? When they heard God instead of running to him, they ran from him. And I don't know about you guys, but I understand and realize that's what I do. When I realize that I've been disobedient to God or I've rebelled against him or I've, I have lived a life or I've done something that's not been pleasing to him. Even as a believer, you know what I do? My first instinct is not to run to God. My first instinct is to head for the trees. I hide out in the trees and then I hope that maybe God doesn't notice me. I hope that God doesn't see me and that he's maybe even gonna pass on by. And so I don't know if you guys do the same thing but it tends to be our first instinct. And so here's what takes place. Right behind what I think is the saddest verse in the Bible, here is what I think is probably one of the verses that give us the most hope. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? I love that. Where are you? You see, if you were God probably, or if I was God, you know what I would have done? I'd have wiped them out. I'd have started over again. I'd have said that's enough. We'll try again. But you know what God did? He continued to pursue them and he sought them. And here, if you've been attending Emmanuel for any length of time, you've probably heard us talk about this thing that we call relentless pursuit. And that just means that we absolutely believe with all our heart that God is pursuing each one of us. Every person that's ever been born, we believe that God desires to have this intimate relationship with them. And so I think what we see here and what gives us so much hope is we see the beginning of God's relentless pursuit for man to chase him down, to put him into the right relationship back with him. Well, here's what happens next. Adam responds, it. he comes out and he says, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God responds and he says, who told you you were naked? Wait, you and, you and I have never had this discussion. I've clothed you in innocence. How would you know that you're now naked? When did we ever talk about being afraid and ashamed? Wait, don't tell me, wait, just a second, you, you didn't, you, di you ate of that tree in the garden that I commanded you not to. Oh, well, Adam responds. This is such a classic response, you're gonna love this. Adam comes back and he says, the man said, <laughs> yeah, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Oh, Adam, please tell me you did not just throw your wife under the bus. <laughs> Unbelievable. Can you just see Adam, can you picture him? God, it wasn't, it's not me, I had nothing to do. In fact, see God, that woman, she's not even my wife anymore, that woman, <laughs> that woman over there. She's the one who, see her, she just came out of the tree. She's got acorns and twigs in her hair. God, I knew from the moment I laid my eyes on her, she was gonna be nothing but trouble. Here's the thing. Here's my, here's my vote, God, here's what I say we do. I say we vaporize her, lightning from the sky, pile of ashes. Listen, God, I still got 23 good ribs left. You're bound to get a good one. <laughs> 
You know what Adam was saying? He does what, he was doing what we all do today, isn't it? First thing that we try to do when we realize that we're guilty of sin and we've done something wrong, what we try to do is we minimize that. We try to push it away from us. And so we look for somebody that we can blame it on. And so we're gonna look and we're gonna say, hey listen, I wouldn't have done that if it wouldn't have been for my husband or my wife or it wasn't for the kids or if it wasn't for the parents I have or my in-laws or my boss or my neighbors or my friends, all of these things, it's not my fault. It's always gonna be somebody else's fault. And ultimately, what we're doing in all of that, we're doing what Adam did, we're indicting God. We're saying, God, ultimately it's your fault. Because if you knew how to run your universe, you wouldn't have allowed any of this stuff to happen in my life, causing me to sin against you. And so that is something that we still do. Well, what was the cost? God said that this was what it was gonna cost, you were gonna die, and he wasn't, lie. he wasn't lying at all. What we see here is, we did die immediately. We died, though, spiritually. Immediately there was a disconnect between us and God. And so, in fact, in Romans 5, 5.12, it says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so what that verse is telling us is that from that moment, that, that, that sin, that stain of sin passed on to every one of us. And in fact, when you think about it, what it is saying is that none of us are born wanting and desiring to have this relationship with God. In fact, every one of us now, we're all born in the trees. We're all born hiding from God and staying away from him. Well, so we died spiritually right away. The next thing that's happened is that we did die physically, but it, was, it, takes, it takes time, it took place, and so the clock started ticking down. And so now what we have is, we all know that we're gonna die, but there are universities, and there are schools, and there are libraries that now are dedicated to do one thing, to try to deal with the sicknesses, and the illnesses, and the diseases today that Adam and Eve brought into the world and introduced to us, so that they can try to deal with this and slow down the clock, slow down that time until, until we die. So we are gonna die. We all know that we die physically. Well, also, what else died? We died relationally. That's what happened. You know, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God said, here's gonna be one of the consequences of your sin. From this point forward, husbands and wives, you're gonna be in conflict. There's gonna be a struggle. Relationships are gonna have tensions. And so we're not gonna be able to do relationships right. Our relationships are broken. And so now, just like medical libraries, we also have law libraries, like this one at Harvard. And these are designed just to do one thing, to be able to turn people out that can be a judge, that can be a lawyer, that can be a prosecutor, that can put agreements together to help us manage our relationships. Because at the very heart, I'm selfish, and at the very heart of you, you're selfish also, and so when we try to do deals together and we try to come to an agreement, we have to watch out because given, the, given the, the, the free range, we're gonna try to take advantage of each other. And so that also we see this. We see that all of creation was cursed. There was actually the curse of creation that happened at that moment. The other thing that God told Adam and Eve when they sinned, he said, you know, I'm gonna curse the very ground and I'm gonna allow thorns and thistles, and from this point forward, Adam, you're gonna to have to work hard by the sweat of your brow. And so now today we experience famines, we experience pestilence, we experience tornadoes and hurricanes, all because all of creation is now out of rhythm, it's out of balance. In fact, in Romans chapter eight, it says that all of creation right now is groaning. It's waiting for the day when God's gonna make all things new. And so that meal was expensive. In fact, today, all of us are still paying the tab and experiencing the payment on that meal. 
As expensive as that meal is, this next meal that we're gonna look at, you're gonna see that it was even more expensive than this one. The next meal I wanna look at, meal number two, is called the Last Supper. Here's the setup on the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples are sitting in an upper room over an inn, and they're celebrating the Passover. And so they're doing the things that are customary for that time, and in the middle of this meal, Jesus decides to say something that's going to ring through all of history. Through all of eternity, he's about to do something that's going to make this impact, and, and, and here's what he says. In the middle of this meal, Jesus says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The disciples missed the impact and the significance of this moment. They didn't realize that Jesus was telling them that he was about to fulfill prophecy, that he was about to give himself up for the forgiveness of our sins. After this meal, Jesus stood up. He led his disciples out into a garden, and there the Bible says that he started to pray. Knowing what was in front of him, the Bible says that he was sweating drops of blood. And medical professionals tell us today that you can become so stressed and under so much pressure that what'll happen is, is that the, the, the capillaries in your sweat glands can burst and you can bleed out through your pores. And so we know now that Jesus knew what was in front of him, he was under tremendous stress. As Soon as he finished praying, there was a crowd and a mob that gathered around him and they took him. They took him captive and they pulled him before different courts that night. He wound up ultimately standing before a Roman governor. And before this Roman governor, the, gov the Bible says that the governor found that he had done no wrong. But the crowd continued to scream, crucify him, crucify him. And so the most amazing thing is that this governor, in order to please the people, that he turned Jesus Christ over to be crucified. Well, the Romans had it down to a science. They knew how to inflict the most painful, humiliating, brutal death on a person. And they wouldn't have taken this person straight to the cross. They wouldn't have done that with Jesus. What they would always do first is they would flog their prisoner. And so what they did is they took Jesus out into a courtyard, they would have stripped him down, they would have tied him to a pole, and then a Roman centurion who would be holding a wooden handle maybe 18 inches long with a number of different whips that, were to be a tight, that would be attached to this, and on those whips would have been attached broken glass, some broken metal, some steel balls that would have been attached to it. And he was a master at being able to step back and hit a prisoner and be able to pull it back in such a way that he could peel the flesh off of a person's back. The Romans had done this thousands and thousands of times and through experience, they knew this also. If you hit a person more than 39 times with that whip, the chances were pretty good that that person would die from trauma and from blood loss. And so we knew that they would have inflicted as much pain as they could on Jesus. They would, have, they would have whipped him 39 times. When they finished doing that and they had torn the flesh off of his back, they had exposed his muscle, they had exposed his nerves, what they would have done then is they took him and they marched him back into the governor's garden. And there, there was a, there was a, uh, there was a, a legion of Roman soldiers that were there. They put a robe on his back, 
They mashed a crown of thorns onto his head. They put a wooden staff in his hand, then they spit on him, they made fun of him, they mocked him, and then eventually they took that wooden, they took that wooden uh, rod back out of his hand, and the Bible says that they beat him about the head. In the Old Testament, it says that he was beaten so bad that you would not be able to recognize him anymore as a man. His face would have been so pulverized, it would have been so brutalized, it would have been so disjointed and swollen up, you wouldn't be able to recognize him anymore. And then when they'd finished doing that and beating him and laughing and having their fun with him, they pull that robe off of him, thereby exposing his nerves to further trauma. Then they would have put that cross on his back, they marched him up a hill to a place that they called the skull. And there at the top of that hill, they would have nailed Jesus to a cross. They dropped that cross into a ground and for six hours, Jesus hung on that cross in the most brutal, agonizing way. And at the end of that six hours, the Bible says that Jesus looked out and he said, it is finished. What was finished? Jesus' mission. He came on a mission and here's what the Bible says. Jesus himself said, for even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What was the cost of this meal? The cost of this meal that was eaten, well, it cost Jesus his life. I cannot even begin to imagine the kind of love that God the Father must have for us. The kind of love that he would allow and send his son to be brutalized in such a way, to be subjected to such torture. In the book of Ephesians chapter two, it, it describes and it says what kind of love God has for us. It's not just your average love, it's not just any love. The Bible says that God's love for us is a great love. And so that's why today as we get ready to take our communion, we wanna make sure that we don't take it lightly. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and so we step into this moment. We wanna make sure that we are serious, that we're solemn. We wanna make sure that we're doing it in a way that honors God and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. The Apostle Paul, he had uh, heard about a church in Corinth that was approaching this time of communion in a way that was dishonoring to Christ. They were diminishing what Jesus Christ had done on the cross. And so he had heard that some of them were getting there early, they were, they were breaking out the bread, they were breaking out the wine, they were partying, and by the time it came time for communion, that they were already drunk. He had heard also that there was conflict taking place, there was rivalries happening inside the church, they weren't getting along with each other. He'd also heard that they were coming to church on Sundays, praising God, then throughout the rest of the week they were living like they had no relationship at all or no accountability at all to Jesus Christ. And so he said, that is not to be done that in no way is acceptable. And so he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, here's what he said. He said, anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on, spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be a part of? Examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. And so that's why at the end of the service, before we take communion, we're gonna take a moment. We'll give you an opportunity 
As a believer, if you've been living in a way that you know has not been pleasing to God, and you've felt like, you know, for whatever reason, you have not moved towards God, but you have run back into the trees, and you've been hiding there, and you've been staying there for so long, and you've just been thinking, I know I need to come out, I know I need to face God, well, today we're gonna give you the opportunity to do that, so that we make sure that when we approach this moment, when we do take communion, that we're doing it with the right heart attitude. Well, here's what's interesting. The first meal that we saw recorded in the Bible, it was Adam and Eve. And because of the way that they had disobeyed God, scholars say that that was actually the fall of man. That's what they call it. But Jesus Christ then, because of Adam and Eve eating that first meal, that second meal then is Jesus' choice to eat the second meal so that it could redeem man from the fall. And because Jesus Christ ate that second meal, here's what's fantastic. Because Jesus Christ ate that second meal, we now, every one of us, have the ability to be able to sit down and the invitation to sit down at this third meal and have and, have and enjoy and celebrate this third meal. This last meal we're gonna take a look at is actually the last meal that's recorded in the Bible. This is called the Marriage Supper. And here's the setup for this one. Sometime in the future, it hasn't happened yet. The Apostle John is given a vision and he's shown what's gonna take place at the end when God restores everything back together and he puts it all, everything that man had, had done to undo what he did, God's gonna restore it and put it back together. So we're gonna see that there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth and the, taint, and the stain and the taint the, 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 and how creation was tainted with sin that's gonna be removed. It'll all be put back the way God had intended it from the very beginning. And right before this happens, there's a celebration that's gonna take place. And so let's take a look and let's see what that celebration's happening. In Revelation 19, here's what he saw. He said, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Oh, man, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? Hey, have you guys ever been to a football stadium where your team is winning and it's out of control and you're jumping up and down and you're celebrating, you're slapping each other on the back and you're screaming as loud as you can because your team is going crazy and you know that maybe they're going to the Super Bowl and that was great for us a couple years ago. Maybe next year we'll experience that, I don't know. Today, at the Super Bowl, people are gonna be doing this. And hey guys, remember what, how loud that is. It's deafening. Well, what, what John's telling us here is that that's gonna be like a whisper compared to what's taking place. And here's what's taking place. Scholars tell us that there's gonna be up to billions and billions of believers at this. And so here's what's happened. Here's what they're screaming. They're yelling out at the top of their lungs, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Wow. Who's the, who's the lamb? Well, we know it's Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what he's, he's doing, he's getting ready to marry his bride. And who's the bride? Well, we heard last week, didn't we, that the church is the bride. And so there's a wedding celebration getting ready to take place. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you guys love weddings? I mean, I think really deep down, we all love weddings because here's what weddings signify. There's something great about a wedding. It shows there's this hope and there's this promise of a new relationship getting started. It's holy, it's pure. It's this picture of Jesus Christ marrying the church. And so I think we really do, we enjoy these weddings and these celebrations. My wife loves weddings. And so if we're driving around someplace and she sees the wedding party out on the, out on the steps of the church, 
I have to either find a place to stop or slow down, or else I gotta go back around the block. And so she oohs and she ahs at the pictures of the bride in her white, and it's so great. And I know this, if my, if my, if my wife thought she could get away with it, We'd go in the back door of the church and we'd sit in the back of the church and we'd watch the wedding taking place. Even though they're strangers, she would love that. My wife is into all things wedding. And I hate to admit this, but she's also got me watching Say Yes to the Dress. (laughs) I'm not proud, I know, I said it. We love weddings, and what else happens? You know, I've been to weddings, and you know what I see the guys doing at weddings? This is hilarious. I see the guys going like this. Just move it along, come on. Because what happens after a wedding? A reception, a party. And that's what's taking place here. We're looking at a, at a party getting ready to happen. And what happens at parties, what, these wedding receptions? You know, they either have a, have a band going on or they have a DJ. People are dancing, people are laughing, singing. They're giving toasts. They're having all kinds of fun. We see people that have flown in that you haven't seen in a long time. Family and friends are reuniting. It is just this incredible time of joy and celebration. And what else do they have at receptions? Somebody said booze, is that right? Oh, nice. (laughs) Must be the bride of the father, thank you, that's great. Hey listen, this is a church, that's the wrong answer. We are looking, I'm looking for food, that's the answer I'm looking for. They have food, and I'm gonna tell you something, they're gonna have a food and they're gonna have a celebration like you've never ever imagined. I remember when I got my first high def TV and I was flipping through and I, I landed on the Food Network. And I remember looking at it and I was mesmerized and I thought to myself, if I had never believed in heaven before, I would then. There's gotta be a place that serves food that looks just as good as this. And here's here's the other thing. You know what we're doing today? Just so that you know, around the the auditorium, we have these plates that say gluten-free. Because we know that there's people who can't have gluten, they're allergic to it, and so they'll get sick. But here's the thing, at this wedding feast, you know what? There's not gonna be any gluten-free tables for you. You're gonna be able to eat all the bread you want, all all the muffins, all the biscuits, all of the pastries, all of the pasta that you can possibly dream of. There's not gonna be any tables like it. And you know what else? If you're diabetic, here's some great news for you. There is not going to be a sugar-free jello table there. I believe. I believe with all my heart that God's gonna take all the jello and throw it in the lake of fire. We're done with it. No more jello. It is just gonna be fantastic. It's gonna be a great time. And you know, I don't know what it costs to feed billions of people. I don't know what the cost is, but it's cost, it costs a lot. And, and, and here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing, let's go back one slide. Here's the thing, I want you to see this. We're all invited. That is the great news, we are all invited. It says that, okay, I missed it. It, There's actually, we're gonna all be invited to this this banquet. And the cost, it's already been paid for. That is the greatest news in the world, isn't it? It's already been paid for. And in Revelations 19, it just says this, that blessed is the one who's invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Blessed is the one who's been invited. And you know the good news? Here's what I love. Every one of us are invited. Every person that's ever been born is invited to this feast. When Jesus Christ stretched out his arms on the cross and he gave his life for us and he bled out for us, the invitations were sent out to every one of us. And so the invitation is just as relevant today 
as it was when God invited Adam and Eve to come out of the trees. And the invitation is to each of us, would you come out of the trees? Would you step into the light? Would you have your sins forgiven? Would you be made pure? Would you be made holy? Would you allow me to clothe you in righteousness? The invitation is to be reconciled back to God. The invitation is to become his friend. And not just his friend, but to also become his child. To become the son and a daughter of God. The invitation is to sit down at this banquet table with God and feast and celebrate for all of eternity. And the way that you respond to this invitation, every, every invitation requires a response. And the way that you RSVP this is just the same way that I did 25 years ago. 25 years ago, I was as deep in the trees as any person could possibly be. I was on my way to prison. I was filthy, I was depraved, I was twisted, and I didn't want to have anything to do with God. And yet God in his relentless pursuit continued to call me. And finally I responded, and I stepped out of the trees, and I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And so today, I'm gonna to give somebody here an opportunity to do just that. And it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how deep you are in the trees, it doesn't matter how depraved or filthy or dirty you think you are. In fact, if that's you and that describes your life, that makes you the absolute perfect candidate to experience God's great love. And so the way you do that is just through faith. It's approaching God in prayer, and it's just recognizing that sin has separated us. We're gonna place our faith in him. And so I'm gonna just, in a minute, I'm gonna ask everyone to bow their heads, to close their eyes, and I'm gonna give that person today that opportunity that has never stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ to do that today. And while we're doing that, I just wanna speak also to the Christians here today. If you're a believer, and maybe you've been living a life that you know that has not been pleasing to God, and, and you've been running from him and you're in the trees again. We're gonna take this opportunity and I'm gonna encourage you and challenge you as we get ready to take communion, that you would make sure that there's nothing at all between you and God, that you would get that right, that you would be clean and you would approach this moment in holy awe. And so I'm gonna ask everyone now if you would just bow your heads please, if you would close your eyes. And if you're ready to step into that relationship with God right now, I would just ask that from your heart that you would just repeat this prayer with me. This is an intimate moment between you and God. And if you would just say this, dear God, I realize that I'm a sinner. And today I acknowledge that my sin has separated me from you. And today, I ask you, God, to forgive me of my sin, not based on anything I have ever done, but because Jesus Christ gave his body and his blood 
for me. And so today, God, I accept your invitation to become new, to become clean, and to spend eternity with you. And I thank you today in Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer today, listen, we are excited that you made that decision. And here's what's really fun. Today, I'm gonna invite you also to take part and to take your first communion as a child of God so that you can truly appreciate what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. And so right now our team is gonna go ahead and they're gonna lead us in one last worship song. While they're doing that, I'm gonna just ask that if you're prepared to take communion, if you would go ahead and leave your seat, you can come up, you can go around the auditorium, you can go ahead and take a cracker, take a, take a small glass with the juice in it. I would go back to your seat. I would take a moment and I would just in, in this holy reverence, thank Jesus for having given his body and his blood. Take the cracker and eat it, drink the juice, and then what we will do is we'll come right back up and we'll close in a minute.
Anybody else a mess? Wow. Anybody excited about the blood of Jesus? You thankful? Isn't that awesome? Man, I'm so thankful. Hey, listen, I just wanted to say as we get ready to close, 
If you prayed today to receive Jesus Christ as your savior, we want to celebrate with you and we also want to put a gift in your hand. As you get ready to leave today, would you do this? At the back of the auditorium on each side, we actually have some team members back there and we want to place a brand new New Testament Bible in your hand. It's broken up so that you can read it in daily uh, portions and so the team will explain to you what's taking place. I just know this, when I became a believer, one of the best things I ever did was to open up and sit down and start reading my Bible. Investing that time is really what helped me to understand what it means to live for God. And so we want to help you get started on that right foot. So please make sure as you leave that you will stop and pick up that gift from us. Wow. Anybody feel like giving God glory right now? Come on. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, we are in awe of what Jesus Christ did for us. God, we thank you for the great love that you showed for us and the price that you were willing to pay to call us out of the trees, to call us into a relationship with you. And so God, as we leave today, allow us to just maintain that seriousness, God, of what you've called us to be. That's your disciples and your followers. And so Father, we love you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys are dismissed. We'll see you next week for a new series, Bring a Friend.